come here, Fagan, Roche, Postum, Clare, Rocheville, Jordan, B. Harrison, and Ostia, Fagan Valley. That's the voice of John Neen, a Manxman born 165 years ago and recorded in the late 1940s. This is the 70th anniversary of a visit to the Isle of Man by a Prime Minister which made those recordings possible. I'm Charles Gard. And in this programme, I'll be discovering how that visit came about, why it resulted in some of the most precious recordings we have of old Manx speakers, and assessing what we can learn from those voices from the past. This is Recording the Manx. It was actually an unlikely visit, because it came from the Prime Minister of Ireland, the Taoiseach, Eamon de Valera, and it resulted in some of the most important recordings ever made of native Manx speakers. These voices come from an age-long past. They were caught just in time, as the memories of a way of life on the Isle of Man were being transformed from living memories to museum exhibits. But how did this visit come about? What was Eamon de Valera doing in Douglas on a July day in 1947? De Valera's grandson, Eamon O'Queeve, himself a member of the Irish Parliament, the Dáil, has taken a great interest in his grandfather's visit and the subsequent recordings. Indeed, he's an official guest here for this year's Tinwell Day to mark this anniversary. And it seems that de Valera's visit to the island was part of an informal holiday. Well, what had happened was that the... Fisher Protection Service had bought two corvettes, the government had bought two corvettes, and Granda decided to do a tour of the Irish islands. So I have photographs of the visit to an awful lot of these islands because I subsequently became Minister of the Islands and people gave me presents of them. So he went to Cape Clear in the south and the Blasket Islands, came up to the west coast, did the Arran Islands, did Turk, Baffin, Clare Island, went up to Donegal, did Arran Moor, Tory Island. When he got to Tory... He wanted to go to the island of Barra in the Hebrides, and uh, it was obviously a Gaelic-speaking island. Uh, Eamon de Valera was very much into the Irish language, uh, had been involved in the revival movement in the beginning of the 20th century. So he decided he'd seek permission to visit Barra. Now, I don't know whether the permission to visit the Isle of Man was sought at the same time, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that the President of Ireland would be welcome on British shores. Throughout the war, Ireland had maintained a neutral stance, referring to the conflict merely as the emergency, much to the aggravation of Winston Churchill, who later said that Ireland was very lucky he hadn't invaded it, to which Eamon de Valera gave a very dignified and measured response. So would he get permission to land at all in the Isle of Man? De Valera was a shrewd operator and knew how to play Whitehall. My mother used to always say that he purposely hadn't asked Whitehall through diplomatic channels a week or a month or two beforehand because he reckoned like any public service and no fault of Whitehall, but he believed like any public service, they would take the cautious view and find some reason 
to refuse permission, but he believed if he asked the Admiralty within two days of sailing and was in the vicinity, that they actually would say there was no problem. And that's as it turned out. Indeed. The corvette edged into Douglas Harbour on the morning of July the 22nd. The visit was described in the local press as quite informal in the course of a brief holiday. It was actually his first trip outside of Ireland since the war ended, and despite the potential for strained relations, the President was met by the island's new governor, Air Vice Marshal Sir Geoffrey Bromit, and accorded all the hospitality he might expect. He was entertained to lunch in Government House and signed the visitor's book, and was taken on a tour of the island. Eamon O'Queeve is convinced that his personality alone would have won anyone over. He was very courteous, he was very educated, and he tended on a one-on-one basis to really win people over. So even people who weren't disposed to like him tended to like him once they met him. Uh, And that stood to him in huge stead over a very, very long career where many, many people went in uh, thinking they wouldn't get on well with him uh, and found that he could be very, very charming on a one-to-one basis. So in the Isle of Man he arrived and I think it's fair to say he gave back something to the Isle of Man in return for the visit there. Well, he certainly did. For what happened next has had a profound effect on our understanding of the Manx language. As part of his tour, Eamon de Valera was taken to Craig Niche, where he started a conversation with local resident Ned Madrill. Ned spoke in Manx Gaelic, and de Valera spoke in Irish Gaelic, and they understood each other. When he went to the Isle of Man and he went to Craig Niche, that he didn't realise that there were still native Manx speakers alive until he met Ned Madrill. And that it was when he met Ned Madrill that he realised this. He came back to Dublin and he actually ordered the Folklore Commission to come over and start interviewing all of the native Manx speakers they could find. And they spent quite a bit of money buying the best equipment they could buy, Mm. uh, equipment that the Folklore Commission hadn't had up until then. So one of the big spin-offs of the famous Manx visit was that the Folklore Commission got the government to buy them a whole lot of very, very good equipment for the time. So de Valera's interest in culture wasn't confined just to Irish. He'd already set up the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, within which was a department of Celtic studies. And the idea was that as the only free, independent Celtic nation, sovereign nation, that we should be taking the lead in the promotion of all Celtic studies, not just purely Irish. So it's in that context you see why it was sensible to go to the Isle of Man with its Gaelic roots. And so the island benefited from de Valera's wide interest in all things Celtic. The Irish Folklore Commission had been set up 12 years earlier in 1935 and its members had crisscrossed Ireland photographing and recording all aspects of rural life. Their instruction from the President to go to the Isle of Man to record the last native Manx speakers was a new venture and, as we've heard, produced brand new equipment for the trip, a great improvement on what the Commission had been using previously. The Commission, first when it started in 1935, actually when they first started recording, they didn't have any recording equipment. They just by hand wrote down stories from people and and lore and, and other items. But then in the 1930s, we had some ediphone machines, which are wax cylinder machines. So that's where the bulk of the recording started. Anna Bale of the Folklore Department of University College Dublin, where the archives of the Folklore Commission are now housed. So right through the 30s, we were using wax cylinders, which were 
wind up mechanical things which had an advantage is that you didn't need electricity uh, but the sound is appalling they're really dictation aids rather than you know for archival recordings for long long term and in fact what happened was that the the wax cylinders were brought back to the Dublin head office the material was transcribed and the wax cylinders were sent back to they were shaved and sent back then for reuse because they, they just hadn't the finances to keep you know, machines like reusing your old cassette tapes yeah. time and time again you know but then eventually by the 1940s I mean there had been talk about getting a proper mobile unit going you know so uh, but it took a long time before the funding was in place and then the war happened and then they couldn't get parts to the, it was quite complicated <laughs> but eventually anyway and I know when De Valera visited uh, the Isle of Man in 1947 he did come to the commission then uh, and even though they had at that stage they had been given um, a gramophone record uh, cutting machine uh, it wasn't suitable for the purpose so in fact extra funding was provided uh, and again it took almost a year for that machine to be adapted for the van to be bought and and everything set up so it was nearly a year later before um kevin danaher uh, finally visited the isle of man to make those recordings kevin danaher now he's a key man and his name is revered in the world of irish folklore collecting it was he who put the equipment together and who actually came to the isle of man the next year to do the recordings the new van was loaded by crane onto a cattle boat in Dublin and made a nighttime crossing to Douglas. Unfortunately, the van was on a deck directly below the cattle, and by the time it reached Douglas, it was hardly recognisable, covered as it now was in cow dung. When Kevin Danaher arrived at the Manx Museum, the then director, Basil McGore, was horrified to see the state of the van and wouldn't let him get out until one of the staff had hosed it clean. Over the next two weeks, with the help of a group of local language enthusiasts nicknamed the Musketeers, he made a set of remarkable recordings, and these original discs are still in UCD's Folklore Department's collection. These, these here are the large metal boxes where the large 16-inch discs are kept. They're beautiful large plates, and you can see that the quality of them, they're just so clean and so... Um, uh, good quality recordings. So this, these are the actual discs Kevin Danaher recorded in 1948 on the Isle of Man. Um, there were, uh, I don't know, about six of the larger ones and then quite a few of the smaller 12-inch discs. So this one here has John Neem talking and a conversation in Manx. I think most sides on these discs are only about 15 minutes. Um, so the whole process was quite complicated because you had the uh, a van, for, first of all, to transport the, out, the, the outside broadcast uh, recording unit. Um, then you had this large disc cutting machine. So the plate was the blank plates, which were imported from the States, actually, the blank Presto plates. Uh, they were placed onto the recording device. The thing was wound up. Now, I think it was a battery-operated machine, but I'm not entirely sure on that. Uh, and then the disc the needle was put in at the centre of the disc. And the recordings were made um, from the inside out. So as the disc was cutting into the lacquer, that, ha that all had to be cleaned as it went along just to clear it and make sure that the recording wasn't distorted by that. So Kevin Danaher was really uh, very technologically brilliant on that kind of thing. He was an army man. He was into sound and all that. Like he'd, Over the years, he'd been experimenting with a lot of... Um, 
you know, the, the, that kind of innovation and, and audio. And he was he was technically minded and really interested in that and good quality of material. And they had been doing some of these recordings anyway. Indeed, this was pioneering recording. And the Commission's engineers had gained great experience in Ireland, in remote locations, making all this work. The stories that um, there was Leo Corduff was the sound, um, he was in charge of the sound archive before me. He has great stories about the van being brought all around Ireland and, and the difficulties that it had. And you had to measure it up and weigh, you know, they had to have stones under the truck and that to, to level everything. And it was a quite a complicated job you know to get these recordings they had to bring their own generator and bring that into the feed that into the house and then there were animals crossing over he has stories about pigs being electrocuted and I don't know how true they are but but however it was done most of the recordings are of remarkable quality and clarity here's 78 year old Sage Kinvig from Ronag reciting a hymn the shush and conscribers crease the goal arrayan and molled nish magit nish nestol ad shen ad shen na noida chi tad goval ron golan ach fadi flon nyatal ri the kenja male chad so who were the people who were recorded and how were they chosen one of the modern day scholars who's helped to transcribe and translate the recordings is Fiona McCardle. Well, I think uh, there weren't too many to choose from who were actually willing to come forward. Um, there were a lot of um, next generation, if you like, students of the Manx language at that time in the 1940s, 1950s. And they got to know the people in their area, um, basically, and they went along and they wanted to learn from them, which is what they did. So they used to go along and chat in the people's own homes. Of course, when it actually came to recording, that wasn't quite so straightforward because some of the homes were somewhat outdated even by those uh, standards and uh, they had to be taken elsewhere and the recordings done outside the home, as it were. Danaher ended up recording 23 men and women, the majority of whom were elderly country folk whose memories stretched back to a way of life that had all but disappeared. You can't help noticing their ages. And you know that old mud house that's out there at Tom Kelly's place? Yeah. Well, that's all stamped with bare feet. Isn't there our bits of the old yeah. wall standing there yet? I was wondering if would be any interest to take that man out to that old house. Annie Neal from Bride, 85, with a wonderful Manx accent. And although she started the recordings in English, they soon got her speaking in Manx. Tell me, uh, couldn't get no then there's Tommy Lees from Carrokeel, 89. Eleanor Karen from Craigneesh, 78. John Tom Cacken from Bride, 86. And John Neen from Balaf, 96. Many of them lived on long after the recordings. John Neen lived to be 106. Yes, and he remembered going over the hills to Douglas via Laxey. Um, he did remember the Laxey wheel. It was built by then, but he also, in part one of the recordings, 
recalls the building of a church in North Ramsey, and that's St Olive's Church in, mm. in North Ramsey, because he used to come in from the Derby area and down the sandy road to the quay, and uh, he was watching the building going up at the time. John Neen was known as Ngao, the smith. That was his profession throughout his life, and he moved around the north of the island. He was in various smithies. Um, there's one at the crossroads towards Andrus at St Jude's. He was actually in there at one stage as well. And in Andrus, and then he went. To, he worked at the Lane. He worked at the Curros. <laughs> so he did travel round. He came from a family of of smiths before him, and and he was the last of the line because it had gone out of fashion after his day, didn't it? You know, uh, playing with horses and all that had gone. So uh, yes, he lived long enough to see his trade disappear, as it were. When he was young, he said all the people who came to the smithy, which was usually at the crossroads, as you know. Um, most of them spoke Manx, but they also spoke English. But during his lifetime, he watched the Manx decline and the English take over until by the time he was finished, there was nobody speaking Manx at all. This change in the use of the language is very evident from the recordings. It wasn't just that these elderly people were faced with new-fangled recording machines – they were also faced with having to get back into a way of talking that many of them hadn't experienced for decades. Many times in the recordings, they lapsed into English and had to be gently prompted back into the mother tongue. Unskilk wunya in Manx man. Tell them in Manx. Unskilk ist. Unskilk ist in Manx then. Lord Gilk wunya. Lord Gilk speak Manx man. They hadn't spoken for many, many years. Some got back into it reasonably quickly, like John Neen the Gale, for example, and others found it extremely difficult. And the students, the, the musketeers, as they called themselves, who went out, they, they obviously spent many hours with the, the respondents trying to get them to recollect not just the stories, they were good at these in English, mm. but to actually remember and be helped with the Mike's words as well, because very often they forgot or they lapse into English. Quite clearly, the recordings give us a personal insight into the way of life of people that were born back in the 19th century. They were worth doing for that alone. But what about their value from the linguistic point of view? What can listening to them today tell us about how Manx should be spoken? Adrian Kane is Culture Vannin's Manx Language Development Officer and does more than anyone to promote the language, to inspire new learners and to make the language relevant for today. Well, I think it's, it's probably the pronunciation as much as anything, really. And hearing, I mean, accents change over time, don't they? You know, I don't speak English like, my, you know, my grandfather, my uncle, who had really quite strong Manx accents in a way. So you're listening to people who, who have a really strong sense of idiom, but, you know, obviously accurate pronunciation because they're brought up, brought and brought up speaking the language and a, a pronunciation which is 100 plus years old in a way. Mm. So I think from for Manx speakers today, it's almost a test really. You need to, at some stage, go and address these recordings, both these and other ones. So it's, it's the key thing is, is that pronunciation and getting that right. So what state was the Manx language in in 1948 when Kevin Danaher arrived with his recording machine? It was in a perilous state, really, and that's probably why these recordings are really, really important, because they just um, got to the native speakers at the almost the last minute in some respects. So the previous hundred years had seen a remarkable you know, language shift 
away from you know rural communities in particular which were monolingual to increasingly bilingual and then increasingly monolingual English speakers really I suppose they had to go out into the country to find you know the last remnants of people who were born and brought up with the language as um, as their first language the, you know the importance of these recordings and the recordings which came after were done by Cheshire Gilgat because this was sort of the impetus for those as well those recordings done in the 1950s were fundamental and given an insight into how the language was spoken you know um in the 19th century but how was it that in 1948 there were so few native manx speakers left why had that shift from manx to english happened you know, language shift happens for a combination of reasons, um, and predominantly economic, I suppose. And these people had, you know, lived through a period in which there had been great language shift. And that, that must be, you know, and not just in the Isle of Man, throughout the world, communities which go through that, there is definitely a psychological impact. And I know, you know, talking to um, people like Brian Stoll and others who, you know, knew, knew and learnt Manx from the likes of Ned Madrill, I think to people like Ned Madrill it was quite... You know, it must have been emotionally challenging, really, to have gone through that period. And of course, at Ned Madrill's um, funeral, there was no Manx there. You know, a funeral without the language which he's brought brought up and, and raised in. So yeah, it must have been, you know, challenging emotionally to have lived through a period where you'd witness this enormous language shift, really. So the recordings captured some of the last remaining speakers of a language that was in a perilous state. You just listen to voices from that era. Mm. I mean, it is, it's it's quite mind-blowing, you know. It's just, mm. so it was great to capture these people. I mean, it really was at the end of that mm. era. So it was fairly urgent that this work be done. And that visit, 70 years ago this month, quite by accident brought about historic recordings that take their place amongst the treasures of the Isle of Man. And it was an Irishman who made it happen though there were some on the island who understood the importance of such work as well. Got a lot to thank, you know, Eamon de Valera for, for these recordings, really. And, you know, sometimes you do need outside people to um, illustrate the importance of it. But there were people in the Isle of Man who knew the importance of it, really. Um, so there were people who recognised the importance. And I suppose those people were those who were able to stand out off the, you know, the the issues about language loss and change and the embarrassments and the psychological impacts on that and just, you know, knew the importance of this stuff just for its own sake, really. And 70 years on, a visit by De Valera's grandson to mark an important anniversary and a priceless link between his family and the Isle of Man. That's obviously a huge pleasure for me. As you know, I've been there before, but I'm delighted to be invited back uh, uh, 70 years after he visited, and I have to say, I, I suppose it'd be strange if I wasn't personally a bit chuffed that the people in the Isle of Man have recognised uh, the visit and the contribution that the visit led to. It wasn't a visit in itself. That could have been just another visit mm. for two days or whatever length it lasted. But it was the consequence of that visit. Mm. And I understand that these tapes have been hugely important, for example, for the All Manx School teaching it at uh, True Manx on the island and so on. And I think that's a happy outcome, but probably at the time it was seen as a minor event. <laughs> <laughs> 